Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you, and a little bit of what is coming up later for our inbox. We have a girl who feels like she can't be vulnerable in close relationships, and she's wondering, is that going to hurt her chances at dating in the future? So one of our counselors will weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, Dr. Carl Truman has done some pretty fascinating research on the history of the gender confusion that we're seeing in the culture today. And so he's going to walk through a lot of that for us in a very very insightful conversation that you don't want to miss. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and we thought it would be fun to have a conversation around making wise entertainment choices. So are you one of those folks that's just kind of like, whatever, if it's on, I'll watch it or listen to it or whatever. You don't really have parameters, or maybe you're someone who has like certain parameters for some things, or what does this look like? How do we even navigate entertainment? It used to just be like movies and TV music. Now it's like video games. It's digital stuff. It's everything in that space. So uh, very pleased to welcome Emily, Maggie, and Paul. Hey, y'all. Hi. Hey. Okay, good to have you. Um, So this is fun. I mean, many of you know Maggie. She's been our summer intern here at Boundless and Emily and Paul are both part of our plugged in team here at Focus on the Family. And uh, but I told them that they can only be partially official in the role. <laughs> they have to actually share their own opinions as well today. So um, we'll see how well that goes. But anyway, I want to kind of start off by just getting a feel for where everyone's at with their entertainment preferences. So what kind of stuff do you like in whatever genre? Like when you talk about like what is amazing, what are you generally talking about i mean you guys i know paul and emily you guys have to watch a ton of stuff for work hmm. you probably have so to listen to this much stuff. Stuff. so much you have to wade through a lot so but when it's just you when you get to choose what you're going to do what do you gravitate towards that's a really interesting question and i've got a really boring answer for you okay. at, at first bore us paul. I, I really do <laughs> i get into superhero movies i really love good gritty Oscar caliber movies. Um, I, I like a lot of that stuff. I really like bad movies too. But if you're talking about <laughs> when we gravitate, like what I watch on my free time, okay. honestly, it's really boring stuff. Like my wife and I, we turn on Good Eats. We turn okay. on House Hunters because <laughs> okay. a lot of times we deal with so much gritty, gripping entertainment that, man, it's just exhausting. Okay. And so when we sit down, I think, you know what? Let's watch someone cook some chicken. You know, okay. it just feels nice and relaxing. See, and I totally left that genre out. Just reality <laughs> TV, all of that, which again, I mean, how, I, I mean, I guess now it's been around for a couple decades probably, but it used to be a newish thing. But now mm-hmm. it's like, who doesn't have a show about something, whether it's on YouTube or elsewhere? All right, Maggie, how about you? I would say probably feel good movies. I'm a sucker for those. Mm-hmm. Um I kind of agree in that I kind of want to escape from the nitty grittiness of life when I'm watching a movie. So most of the time I will do feel good movies unless I'm with my brothers and then we'll mar- watch a lot of Marvel movies. Okay. So okay. it kind of just depends on who I'm with. So feel good, you mean like it has to have a happy ending? It has to Kind be, of, has... but not as cheesy as Hallmark because okay. I want there to be some conflict. <laughs> I want it to be a little bit realistic, but I'd want to end on a happy note hey hallmark there's always a misunderstanding about who's <laughs> moving back to the city and who's going to open up the shop whatever okay i'm just defending them but emily how about you uh i tend i kind of go all over the map i um i like some reality shows like i really like bar rescue and uh kitchen nightmares because 
you know, in the, those are the kind of reality shows that, yes, there's a lot of drama, but they usually, as the show goes on, you actually see a redemption arc a little bit, which I think is kind of fun. Um, you know, better, way better than shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, where it's just drama, 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 drama. Yeah. And then the episode is over and you're like, wait, it, like to <laughs> me, you like you watch and with reality shows, I feel like if you've seen one, you've probably seen them all. But yeah, that's where I go with the reality shows in terms of like sitcoms and stuff. Um, it's kind of funny as I've gotten older, it just kind of shifts with the times. Cause I used to be a big fan of like friends and the office and I don't like those shows as much anymore. And it's not because I've seen them a million times. It's just that as I've grown and matured, my tastes have changed and I don't, I'm not as big of a fan of those types of shows anymore. I tend to look for stuff that for me at least where maybe it's not as trashy or maybe it's not as you know been there done that so like sometimes what will happen is i'll go even older school i'll go and watch a show like cheers or frasier which was you Mm -hmm. know before my time really (laughs) Uh and um because to me those were like the original shows and they still have their problems but they're entertaining okay good yeah i would say um for me it's kind of a mix of i definitely movies i can get into the feel-good thing like stuff that's very inspirational uh, a lot of times historically driven Ooh, i love yes. those period i love pieces. period pieces um i love it you know where i where i learn something or i feel like invested in the characters by the end i don't watch a ton of tv when i do it tends to be like procedural like a crime dramas or like cop shows (laughs) which I mean what else is on tv these days I guess now that now that we're saying that um so that kind of thing or um yeah I used to get into some of the music shows like the voice and stuff but I had to just give (laughs) that up I'm like okay whatever um but what I will not do what I can't stand as a rule is like sci-fi and fantasy like I don't if it's not if this cannot happen in real life I'm just not (laughs) into it and uh, now I've given some super superhero movies a pass because they're very they're a playful romp I can get into that and I have to give like Lord of the Rings a pass because it's Tolkien whatever but generally if anyone like wanted to kill me they would make me sit down and watch like Willow or like some of those old school like there even as a kid I wouldn't do never ending story or some of that randomness sci-fi if it's like if if this could not happen in real life I'm just not there for it so clearly Lisa you and I are not going to go to the same movie parties that's that's just not we're not and i get in music you guys know um from me talking on the show in the past i'm all over the map i love me some southern gospel i love rock i like rap hip-hop all different genres there um okay but i want to turn a corner in this about so we're talking about what we gravitate towards but in making entertainment choices we also have to talk about what do we use as our own litmus tests then for what we what i mean you know Emily and Paul, jobs aside, what you're forced to watch. <laughs> what really is kind of where are your lines? What do you have? Do you find that you have to draw stuff? Do you find that stuff for you personally is especially problematic? Stuff that you have a hard time with? Um, you know, Maggie and I uh, will weigh in as well because I, I feel like I've had this conversation with myself many times over the years. But what do you guys think? I feel like I've always had. Um... I've always had trouble with certain types of movies like that 
portray like violence against women those Mm -hmm. types of movies i tend to just steer away from because i know that it's a reality in you know throughout history that that is that's the stuff that has actually happened to women Mm -hmm. and um and you know part of the reason for that also is because i've read of i've read a lot of horror stories where it's just like you know the actresses portraying those scenes aren't always given complete agency over them and so you know i'm thinking in particular i'm thinking of a Clockwork Orange and um, that other that Marlon Brando movie. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was called Last Tango in Paris. Mm -hmm. The actresses who, you know, in both of those movies, there are characters who get raped. And I read after the fact that, you know, the actresses in those scenes were not, you know, given the like I said, the agency that they needed over those scenes to be comfortable and to be safe. And Mm -hmm. therefore, it, it was just like a bad experience overall. And it's like, yeah. that's not okay. It's yeah. like, you can sit there and be like, but the art. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, not when you're harming a human being. Yeah. And um, then you're living it too as the, as the exactly. viewer. Exactly. And you know, I, and I think that's the other part of it. It's like, you can sit there and say, well, this is for, this is art. This is what happened. It's like, that doesn't mean that anybody needs to relive that. Neither the people portraying the scene or the people watching it at mm-hmm. home. Yeah, that's good. I always go back to, just to riff on what you were saying a little bit. When you talk about art, I I think that there's a lot of confusion about what art means, right? When I think about the old movies from the 1930s or 40s or 50s, there were some strict codes in place that prevented uh, a lot of really graphic details being Mm -hmm. shown on screen. And it was still considered great art. You can still tell grand stories without all all that content. Oh, yeah. So I do find that since I've been a part of Plugged In, I have found myself sensitive to that Mm -hmm. issue you know thinking about what can how can this story be told Mm -hmm. and does it need to have all this content now sometimes i actually think it kind of does you know there are certain movies that require a certain level of content to really bring across those stories exactly exactly Mm -hmm. i find myself oddly enough because i watch so much stuff the movies that i find that give me trouble honestly would be rom-coms hmm. which is hmm. a little bit strange no but i agree with that yeah they I can be see some of that too you know because i'm 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 married i'm older all this kind of stuff i think that that sometimes when you see a, a rom-com you sort of have this longing to be in a place that you are not anymore mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you want to be back to your teens you want to be back to your 20 somethings whatever yeah. and so you feel a little bit of that longing and i think that that for me that can bring me to a point of poignancy that is not necessarily great mm-hmm. that's good but yeah. even just riffing off of that you know um i feel like a lot of rom-coms that i've seen you know since i started working with plugged in even you know it, it comes my litmus test is would i feel comfortable watching this with my parents in the room yeah. mm-hmm. and if i wouldn't then there's a good chance that even as i'm watching it by myself i'm kind of like this is a little weird like you know because it, it really stinks because you know i went to the movies to see i don't even remember what movie it was it was something with jennifer lopez i think i went to go see it with my mom though and we read the plugged in review you know before we <laughs> went to go see it and i don't think she read it in detail i think she just kind of grazed over it and was like yeah let's go see it because because she had heard good things about it. And when we left, she was like, that was atrocious. She was so uncomfortable throughout the film. Like she wanted to get up and leave like more than once. She didn't because she had paid for it, but she was very uncomfortable. And when we left, she was like, never again. And I was like, I mean, 
you know, like, and I knew what it was going to be because I did read the detail, the review in full. And she, uh, but yeah, she was just astounded that everybody had told her it was such a good movie. And then it was just, it was trash. And yeah. she was really upset. And I was like, well, I, I told you, mom. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of problematic. So I think my litmus test is more, what am I going to be thinking about after I watch this movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if a movie has a like a lot of sex in it like I don't really want to be thinking about that a lot after I watch the movie Um, and sometimes I'll just choose to watch movies I never really watch them by myself but I'll watch them with other people and sometimes I'll choose to watch them and and just close my eyes Mm -hmm. at some parts Um, but I think it's just what am I going to be dwelling on Mm -hmm. I really resonate with that I think that that when you leave the movie theater or when you turn off the TV, those movies inherently make you think about things, right? I mean, it's it's just, it's part of the way they're built. They want you to think about things. Right. But when you were talking about feel-good movies, that did resonate with me because there are some movies that purposefully make you want to feel bad. And you can think about horror movies where mm-hmm. everybody dies at the end and you go back to your car and you're looking at your backseat to, to make sure that it's, it's empty. Yeah. But you have these movies that have really dark thoughts about the world around us. And mm. those are really hard movies for me to watch because I just don't need that kind of sadness and, and nihilism in my life. And sometimes movies can feel pretty nihilistic. Yeah. I've got, and and I think I still kind of hold to the standard, and I don't even know when I came up with it, but there are very few, like, I will almost never watch a movie that is rated R, and that is a lot of movies, (laughs) unless it has for some specific reason been recommended to me. But I will not just be like, oh, it's on, so I'm going to check it out. Like, so, you know, movies that tend to be war movies, you know, are going to fall in that genre. And if I know that it's because of, you know, just war violence or whatever, you know, then I, there are some things I give a pass to, but I will almost as a rule, never do super graphic sex, uh, torture, horror, occult, And then actually the big one that we haven't talked about here yet, which is probably my biggest offender that I almost will never tolerate, pretty much never, is um, mocking of God or Christians. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. specifically something that is going to be blasphemous or I know, and I've had to cut out a number of TV series for that reason, um, Will and Grace being a great example of one, you know, that back in the day when it started, it was supposed to be so funny, but not only is it glorifying sin in the form of homosexuality, but then the mocking of Christians and the mocking of God and many, you know, um, storylines and plot lines of that and stuff. It just was something I had to give up and, and you could go over into music for the same things. You know, I mentioned I like rap and hip hop. Well, you know, I pick the three songs that I can listen in the standard catalog <laughs> of any mainstream rapper. And, and, uh, again, and if I listen to a clean version, it's going to be bleeped every third word. So that kind of like leaves out a whole catalog of stuff, you know, where it's just, that's not not going to be available to me at that point. Yes, I also want to piggyback off of that and talk about the feel-good movies like you had mentioned again. I think it is important that movies tell a story, and so sometimes I do want to feel good, but also it's important to realize that life is hard, and so sometimes it's good to watch movies that, like Lisa said, that some people will recommend you rated R movies and you'll watch them because you'll know it'll be a good story and it'll be a good perspective to hear even if it's not the most pleasant. So I think it's a balance between 
navigating this. Yeah. And I think that's where you get down to why is this story being told? And what is, I mean, there's a lot of historic stuff that's captured in in movies and stuff that is just, that's just how it went down, you know, and, and it's hard to come to grips with and hard to understand, but there's value in it for knowing, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, clearly people have used like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List or some of those as examples of those movies that are just you're grappling with stuff that's like, wow, this was a reality for people and this is hard to to take in. So what in conversations with people or as you're let's let's bring this into real life, because, you know, you don't want to be that person that like all your friends are kind of going out and they're going to go watch something and you're like, um, let me walk through my 12-point litmus test of what I can do. You know, no one wants to be that guy. But yeah. sometimes you have to be that guy. And you have you also can't just cave and be like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because, again, we're all called to, um, you know, before before God, we, we know what, uh, you know, what we know in our hearts and our spirits we should and, and shouldn't be doing. And we want to be sensitive to that. So what does that look for you like in, in the reality of it, making these kind of decisions? Well, um, you know, I have serious FOMO, the fear of missing out, (laughs) like, all the time. And I know that often, you know, if I have a group of friends who are going to go watch a movie that I just have no interest in watching, it's like, I basically have to make a choice. It's like, okay, well, I can go with them and watch a movie that might actually make me feel really uncomfortable and leave me just feeling gross when it's over. And and then have to talk about it because you never leave a movie and you don't talk about it. You always talk about it. You know, oh, what'd you think? Oh, I really like this. Oh, I hated that, you know. And, you know, what am I going to do? Just sit there and let myself kind of be drowned in uh, all of that because I didn't have the courage to stand up for myself? Um, or am I going to say, hey, you guys... I don't feel comfortable watching this. Can we see a different movie? And, you know, if they sit there and they're like, no, we're going to go see this. You're the only one who doesn't want to watch it. Then, yeah, sometimes that means that you don't go see that movie and you just kind of have to suck it up. But, you know, it's like it, it really comes down. In my opinion, media discernment really comes down to how it makes you feel. And if you are going to feel gross, if it's going to, you know, as uh, Maggie was saying earlier, if you're going to be sitting there thinking about it, you know, for hours after the fact, and it's just not going to make you feel good because either you're questioning why you allowed yourself to watch it or you're just, or you were just uncomfortable with the material because like, you know, maybe it triggered you in some way, then, you know, you have to make that choice. It's like you can either miss out and your friends all go see it. And for all you know, they might come back and be like, hey, you were right. I shouldn't have gone to see that, you know, because there's always I never feel like I'm truly alone. If I'm willing to speak up and say, hey, I don't want to go see this and this is why there's always at least one person who will back me up and be like, "Okay, yeah, let's not let's let's find something else to watch. Let's go do something else. We do not have to go see this movie tonight. We can watch it another time when you're doing something else. Yeah, good point. I think it's difficult because everybody's like movie tolerance, I guess, is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things, some movies will affect me a certain way, but it won't affect other people a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so like I can't be super like self-righteous or anything about that. Um, it's all what other people think about after they watch the movie, like I've been saying. And so I think it's a lot of just kind of like Emily was saying, navigating what is the right decision for me personally. Um, there are some movies that are not good for anybody probably, but most of the movies that like my friends and I watch, 
I'm okay with. And if I'm not okay with it for various reasons, then I'll say that. And sometimes um, we'll end up watching it and then I'll just leave the room when there are scenes that I don't want to watch. Or sometimes we'll pick a different movie. Um, But I think it's a lot about um, knowing yourself and knowing what triggers you, what's good for you, what makes you think thoughts that you probably shouldn't be thinking, and then also having the courage to communicate that to your friends. And if they are real, true, solid friends, then they should be able to respect that. I think that's absolutely right. And for me, it's a really weird, hard question, honestly, for me to answer, because oftentimes I would see movies before they're out in theaters and before my friends would, would actually say, hey, do you want to see Black Widow? Mm-hmm. You know, that that would be something that, that I would be able to say, yeah, I could see that again. Or, no, that's really not my type of movie. But I, I do believe that that as you're having these conversations with friends, it's it's good to be just completely honest, mm-hmm. you know, to say, you know, this supernatural horror movie makes me feel really uncomfortable. I really have a problem sleeping after watching it. Or this particular romance could be troubling in a relationship that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel comfortable watching mm-hmm. it without my spouse or significant other. Mm-hmm. I think that, that when you're talking amongst friends, it helps to just be honest. Because mm-hmm. I think friends understand kind of everybody's different sensitivities, everybody's different likes, dislikes. I think that that's, that's just goes with the territory of, of friendship. Mm-hmm. And so being, being honest, I think, is just really important. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other thing that I just want to add, which is um, a little bit of a, a pivot, but important to mention, is also just sheer volume of consumption is yeah. something mm-hmm. to mention mm-hmm. as well. And so, like, you know... Eating one bag of Cheetos isn't bad. <laughs> Eating five bags of Cheetos is probably not the best. <laughs> Listening to one BTS song probably isn't bad. <laughs> Listening to everything they've ever put out, questionable. You know, or reality. I mean, I have friends that I think, no joke, are following 10 different reality shows. And then they just talk <sighs> about it like it's their life. And they just kind of are like, bah, 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 this is my stuff. And they're following these people's lives like they're actually their friends. And it's just, you know, you're kind of like, Look at your day. I mean, we all, I, I've said this many times at Boundless that what is important to you, you will always find time for. And so if you look at your week and prioritize your week with what that is, you know, in what you ingest, you know, is, is important to keep in mind as to where it's going to go with that. And I think it's also so important to really think about why you're watching mm-hmm. what you're watching, especially if you're watching a, a lot of something. Mm-hmm. Is it to fill a void? Is it because you don't want to be lonely? Is it because you don't want to think about certain things? And so if it's for any of those reasons, you probably shouldn't be watching it. Yeah. When you talk about the amount that you consume, especially in the world of entertainment, that is a really important aspect of this conversation. That's a a great thing to bring up. Before I ever started at Plugged In, I was a movie lover. I would go to movies a lot. And I think that, that a lot of people go through that period where they're seeing a movie every weekend. You forget when you're not in the position like I am where you actually count swear words, where you actually <laughs> count these things, mm-hmm. you forget what's in them. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy, particularly in the realm of profanity. I, I think that, that there are movies that I saw before I became a plugged-in reviewer that I saw after. And because my sensitivities have been raised, I realized how 
foul they can be. Now, I've never been a big swearer, but at the same time, the fact that I didn't remember mm -hmm. how profane they might have been, mm -hmm. um, I think is an illustration that, yeah, what we consume, we develop a tolerance for. Yeah. You know, those those Cheetos, eventually, you just want more and more of that powdered cheese. And that's the same with movies, by yeah. gosh. Yeah. All right. Well, we are out of time, but I do want to, in our last 30 seconds, this has to be rapid fire. Everyone just has to say, because we want to turn the tables here. If you could think of one movie that, you know, instead of ingesting all the garbage that's out there, everyone absolutely needs to see in their lifetime. What is your pick, Paul? Oh, my goodness. I have to go first, <laughs> yep. man. Um, you know what? I would say Casablanca. Lord of the Rings, for sure. Definitely okay. a time commitment, so set aside time for that. But just the story is beautiful, and it's redemptive. And just the scenery is stunning. So yep. makes you feel good, but only because of all the battles and the hopelessness that leads to hope. Okay. And even though it's fantasy, we can put up with it. All right, Emily? <laughs> I agree with both of those choices, but um, I'm going to pick Minari. Just so you guys know, it was an Oscar contender this past year, and it was Plugged In's pick, uh, the Plugged In Movie Awards for adult movies. So oh, it's beautiful a great one. movie. Beautiful okay, movie. Good. Um, I always pick something that's like inspiring or something, you know, often based on a true story, whatever. So um, I'm going to give a random suggestion. This is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. So I'm going to say Chariots of Fire. Um, mm. Underdog story. It's got running. It's got foreign missions. It's got the Olympics. It's got Britain in it. So those are just a lot of things that I love. And um, yeah, it's just it's a good flick. So. You guys, thanks so much for being part of this conversation. Good stuff. Thank you. Oh, I wish we could talk for another hour. <laughs> we, we will next time. Next time. Awesome. Folks, for this week's um, culture segment, you are going to have to put on your smart cap because we're actually, you know, sometimes for our culture segments, we just break it down and we just talk about life, whatever. But today we're actually going to get just a smidge academic, not totally academic, though, because we'll still make it understandable. But um, partly because we have a smarty pants guy here on the line today, uh, it is Carl Truman. Uh, he actually received his PhD in church history from the University of Aberdeen and also uh, had a master's in classics from the University of Cambridge. He currently is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College here in the States in Pennsylvania. So uh, Dr. Truman, welcome to The Boundless Show. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it's great to be here. And today's topic, you know, it's not like we're going to talk about like math or anything. So everyone can be, you know, <laughs> they can they can relax on that front or maybe that's just me. Um, but you actually have written a book and you've written a number of books. You're the author of a book on Luther, I know, a book on John Owen. And so just a, a lot of stuff out there. But today's book, you wrote, uh, it's titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And someone might be like, what in the world? Um, because your, your subtitle is Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And so let's start out. I mean, in general, we're going to be talking about, you know, and we talk about this a lot here at Boundless, the uh, issues around sexual identity, around sexual expression. Obviously, we've dealt a lot uh, here at Boundless with uh, LGBT issues as well as now gender dysphoria. And we're going to kind of like back it up a little bit and and say, how kind of did we get here? And you actually begin your book here. I was saying, you know, we were going to be all academic, but you start the book with a pretty provocative phrase where you say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And that that statement that has become something that people kind of toss around and we see it in the news and we've seen celebrities uh, make that statement. Why is this phrase significant, and why do you kind of use that as the springboard for starting out on this topic? Yeah, good question. I, I think there are a couple of aspects to to the answer. One, it's a very dramatic statement, and it's fascinating that it's moved from being something that for my grandfather's generation, or even just 10, 15 years ago perhaps, would have been regarded as quite bizarre by most people in Western society to something that is now... Uh, so much part of the cultural orthodoxy that to to question it or to cast aspersions on it as being incoherent is to render oneself liable not only to Twitter storms but cancellation, being decried as a bigot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's fascinating that the the idea that underlies that statement has moved very very fast from being a a marginal. Uh, concept to being something that's very, very mainstream. And and the speed at which that happened, I think, points me to the second uh, point of significance. And that is, things like that may appear to happen very fast. But when they do happen at this kind of lightning or breakneck speed, we can be pretty sure that the the background has been building for a long time, that what we're seeing is the manifestation in a dramatic way of what I describe in the book as cultural pathologies, we might say aspects of the culture that have been around and building force for a long, long time. So I think it's useful partly because of the, the dramatic nature of the statement and partly because it it hints, it points us to the fact that what we're dealing with here is is not an isolated phenomenon. What we're dealing with is is something that is symptomatic of much deeper and more long-standing changes within Western culture. Yeah, well, it's so true. And even as you were saying that, and even speaking, you know, opening talking about uh, your grandfather, I was like, my goodness, yeah, I don't think of anyone in my grandparents' generation or that would really even devote a lot of time to thinking about this. And I think, but but as I think about it, I'm I, I feel like I'm always reading about cultural stuff and but but even myself I would say I just feel like it's just in the last few years that this has become so assumptive in the sense of 
you know, who's coming out, who's gender fluid, who's changing their pronouns, who's it. It's just something that maybe because of the, you know, the accessibility of social media and the way people can tell their own stories, there's an element of that. But I do want you I want to get into this again, uh, where you have really dug deeply um, into a lot of studies around this. You actually point to uh, specifically two dudes, Rousseau and Freud, for being pivotal in kind of the definitions around this. And so much of it has to do with what you talk about, um, this understanding of of the self. And I think so much of that is in Western culture. I mean, you think of, you know, Eastern cultures where what what is much more important is your your part of the whole. Uh, you know, you're not trying to stand out. There's much more of a, you know, shame-based culture rather than this individualism that we see in the West. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. Where Talk about what Rousseau really had to say on this and how it shaped the conversation. Yeah, Rousseau is an interesting figure. He's a, an 18th century uh, Genevan philosopher whose thought has had a huge impact both in the, in the realm of political philosophy down to the present day and educational philosophy. Child-centered learning owes a lot to things put in motion by the, the educational philosophy of Rousseau. Where he's interesting for me for the narrative of, of this rise of the modern self, of how we think of ourselves in the modern world is, you know, when you think about, say, transgenderism, we were, we were speaking about that just a moment ago, what has to come to be true for transgenderism to make sense? Well, the body has to become less important to who you are than your feelings, you know, if you went to the doctor 100 years ago and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would probably say, that's a problem. It's a problem with your mind. We need to adjust your mind to bring it into conformity with your body. You go to the doctor today, the, do the doctor will likely say, well, it's a problem. It's a problem with your body. We need to bring your, your body into conformity with your mind. When you compare those two responses, I think what, what we can say occurs between them is the authority of the body has been dramatically diminished. And the authority of our inner feelings has been uh, dramatically enhanced. Well, Rousseau is critical to that because Rousseau is the 18th century philosopher who, more than anybody else, essentially says, you know who you are? You are what you feel. Specifically, you are what you feel before society gets its claws into you and forces you to conform with its conventions and its expectations. Sometimes people talk about Rousseau's concept of the noble savage. I don't think he ever uses the term himself, but it, it captures this idea that, that human beings are most authentic when they're acting outwardly in a way that is consistent with the way they feel inwardly. Hmm. He's, if you like, uh, stands at the, at the root of what we call expressive individualism, which is that idea that we find our authentic selves by acting outwardly in a way that, that we are convinced we are inwardly. So Rousseau is very, very significant on that front. Clearly, he has no opinion on the transgender question. That was some hundred years hmm. uh, to the future when he was alive. But, but this prioritizing of what we might call the natural inner instincts of us as being the real us, that's critical. And that comes to grip the Western imagination in a way that that ultimately will make transgenderism plausible. Yeah. 
Well, and then with that, um, you then uh, kind of move into a conversation. Uh, you bring Freud into the conversation where specifically we're not just talking about self, inner versus outer at this point, but specifically tied to sexuality itself. And, you know, we've even said that here on The Boundless Show, this idea of like, we feel like in our culture, it's it's like our sexuality or sex specifically is the biggest thing about us. That's what we're being told. And, you know, to the point where I've even heard from Christian young adults who will say, Lisa, I can't even imagine going to my grave not having had sex. I mean, am I even fully human with that not as part of the equation? Uh, talk to us about Freud's contribution there. Yeah, Freud is a very interesting figure from the perspective that that he is the man who he does this very interesting thing with sex. You know, if, if you look at the Bible, you look at human history. Clearly, you know, the very fact that human race has reproduced itself indicates that sex has been around time immemorial. If you look at the Bible, the Bible has lots of instances of of sexual activity. Uh, some of them, the Bible considers legitimate. Uh, some of the sexual activity, the Bible clearly portrays as as illegitimate. What's interesting, though, is that the Bible always portrays it as an activity. What Freud does in the late 19th, early 20th century, he's the most prominent, brilliant and articulate member of a, of a group of uh, psychoanalysts who come to the conclusion that really they, they sort of agree with Rousseau that, yes, that inner space is the most important part of us. But they, they give it a twist, whereas Rousseau had this rather rosy and optimistic view of this inner space. For Freud, it was a rather dark inner space defined by sexual desires. And what Freud does when, when, he, when he says, you know, you are your inner desires and those desires are sexual, he turns sex from being something we think of primarily as an activity into something we think of as an identity. In other words, yes, you are your inner desires and feelings. And guess what? Those inner desires and feelings are primarily or ultimately sexual desires and feelings. So it, it helps explain, for example, why we have you know, the, the L and the G today. Uh, somebody could describe themselves as gay or a lesbian. What, what are they saying there? They're saying, I, I'm a person fundamentally defined by my erotic attraction towards somebody of the same sex. And when you think about that, you can describe yourself as gay without ever having had a sexual experience. Yeah, you're talking about desire, not activity here. It also plays into a, a model of, of human selfhood that you've already alluded to, where you've said, you know, even young Christians will say to you, I don't want to go to my grave without ever having had sex. Well, why would they say that? Well, we live in a world where the Freudian idea has sort of been put on steroids. That, yes, if we are our sexual desires, if that's who we are at our most fundamental level, then to be truly and fully fulfilled, to act outwardly in accordance with our inward desires that expressive individualist idea uh, to be truly fulfilled is to be able to act outwardly in accordance with our inner sexual desires and so sex has become the be-all and end-all in many ways of human identity in the book i refer to the movie the 40 year old virgin i've never seen the movie but i know it's a comedy how do i know it's a comedy the whole idea of being a 40-year-old virgin today, society will tell you, is intrinsically absurd because that speaks of somebody who is not fulfilled, not fully human, I think was the phrase you used. Very accurate phrase, actually, that. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and so I kind of want to ask another question in tandem with that, because again, when culture comes into play, we're finding that culture is defining so many of our terms today. And so how, I mean, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. Clearly, we know that Satan is out and about deceiving people and sin is rampant. I mean, there's a there's a ton of deception going on and clearly the issues around sexuality are, you know, they're <laughs> kind of king in, in this area. So how do we as Christians be kind to those who are deceived and be kind around this issue, not name calling, not being sarcastic or condescending, but also speak plainly and truthfully, because I think we have let the culture hijack our language, uh, choose what terms are being used. So how do we enter the conversation appropriately as believers? Yeah, very good question. And I think that there are a number of principles, general principles one could lay out where any given situation, of course, will have its own unique aspects. So it's difficult to to generalize a detailed one-size-fits-all model. But I would say a number of principles apply. First of all, and, and most foundationally, I think we need to make a distinction between what I would call LGBTQ ideology or the LBGTQ movement as a political entity, a political force, and individuals who may be struggling with gender dysphoria or same-sex uh, erotic desires, etc. We need to make a distinction. And I think on the former we need to present very, very powerful and pungent arguments that show why this ideology, why this political movement is very damaging to the flourishing of society. Everything from freedom of religion to private spaces is going to be damaged and affected by this movement. And I think it's important that we we stand clearly against that. Uh, but when it comes to individuals, I think we need to to wrestle and deal with individuals on a, in a very pastoral way. Uh, I personally never come across any, any Christian who's been struggling with these things, who's wanted to struggle with them. Uh, it, it's not something they, they take pleasure in or delight in. It's something that is a great burden to them. And I think when, you, when somebody comes to you and they're terribly burdened, that they're confused about their gender or they're, they're subject to these powerful desires for, for people of the same sex... I think we need to deal firmly, but also very pastorally with such people. Then I think there's a third category, the, the category of you know, our next-door neighbors who may not profess to be Christians, but could be LGBT, whatever. How do, we, how do we approach them? Well, I think what we need to do there is be good neighbors. Uh, we need to, I won't say earn the right to speak to them, but I think our words uh, of, of rebuke or criticism or our pushback on their way of life will carry a lot more credibility if we in our day-to-day -day lives treat them as creatures made in the image of God. Now, it may well be that you treat your gay neighbor very, very well and they still throw it all back in your face. Well, they'll answer for that at the end of the day, uh, but their response to you does not legitimate you treating them in a cruel, harsh, or, or unchristian way. So I would say we need to think about the different categories or the different context in which we engage this stuff, and, and a different strategy should apply in each place. Though I would say the use of extreme uh, language and the use of, of, uh, of deliberately cruel language is never a particularly persuasive strategy in, in any context. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, it's interesting because just this morning I was reading a book on the power of Christian community and specifically the whole design around community in the New Testament church was to bring the kingdom of God uh, to cities, to cultures, and to be that aroma of Christ. And so I know you in in the book say, in fact, um, just a, a little portion of it here, you talk about if the message about the self is that of expressive individualism, and if that message is being preached, the task of the church in cultivating a different understanding of the self is, humanly speaking, likely to provoke despair. Therefore, the church must be a community. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, um, Dr. Truman, just the, the idea around the power of community in speaking truth to this, and you alluded to it, obviously, and how we need to uh, be, you know, uh, reflect Christ in our interactions, in our words. But why are why are just Christians being Christians in community such a powerful testimony? Well, I think one of the, at the base of being a human being, at the base of the human experience, Christian and non-Christian is, we want to be free. We intuitively experience the world as free. We make our own decisions. I decide what I eat for breakfast in the morning. I, I, I decide where I work. There are a whole host of things that I intuitively experience as free. But we also want to belong. We get our identity primarily from the groups which acknowledge us, that give us a sense of value that give us a, a sense of worth. And we find that through being part of, of a community that's bigger than ourselves. And, and most of us, of course, we are members of various communities and we might say have various identities. So uh, I'm an employee of Grove City College. I'm part of the community there. I'm also a husband and a father, so I'm part of my family. As you can tell from my accent, I, I'm English, not American, so I also have a national identity. So I have a, of a whole sort of deck of cards of identities in, in different contexts that all make up me. But the strongest identity I have is always going to come from the strongest community to which I belong. So my identity as a husband and father is always going to be more powerful than my identity as an employee of Grove City College. As important as the latter is, ultimately, it's less of an identity to me than my identity as husband and father. And I think that's where the church needs to think. When, when you're thinking about evangelizing people in general, but specifically those who belong to what I would describe as very strong communities, let's say a Jewish friend or a Muslim friend, uh, they belong to very strong communities where their religion is very much tied to their community. Humanly speaking, they're not going to become Christians unless the church is offering them a community that's even more powerful than the one to which they belong. Now, obviously, we believe conversion is supernatural. God's grace features in this, etc., etc. But we have to think strategically as human beings. And I think that what the church needs to do as it, as it finds itself pushed to the margins and as it finds its views increasingly uh, delegitimized by society is to take that, that marginalization as an opportunity to form strong communities. Because one of the things that characterizes our world is people are desperate to find communities. The old communities of family and nation are crumbling all around us without anything obvious to replace them. This is the moment when the church can provide a family to the person with no family, can provide a home for the, the homeless person 
uh, metaphysically speaking. So I think the church's community is is a very important thing. It's not the only important aspect of the church, of course. Uh, doctrine is very important as well. But Jesus himself said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for each other. And we know, historically speaking, that it was the church's existence as a tight-knit community that proved so potent in uh, the the uh, uh, Roman Empire in the first few centuries of the church's existence. Yeah, and that's so true, and that's the power that we have as Christian community today, which is hilarious as I'm looking down again at the cover of your book titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I mean, it sounds like something that everyone would be into, but we know that ultimately self is so disappointing. And the whole, the concept of people are looking for connection. They're looking to be known. They're looking to be loved. They're looking to belong. And that is absolutely what we can offer in the body of Christ. And and like you said, it is a supernatural experience, but we have the privilege of, um, of introducing people uh, to Jesus Christ and to that opportunity to become part of this family. So we think we want to celebrate self, but it, it is going to turn up empty. Um, again, folks, the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. We've been talking to Dr. Carl Truman. And uh, just an FYI, uh, as we often do here on the show for our culture segments, we want to make this book available to you. So um, for a gift of any amount to Boundless, if you go to boundless.org, you can search for 708. That's this episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Um, you just give what you can afford as a gift to help keep Boundless going, keep the ministry going, the community here going. And we want to send this book to you as our thank you to you. And so, uh, like I said, it's just a great uh, great primer, really, I mean, to this topic, the historicity of it, where we're going, what it means, and uh, a great conversation starter as well. So, Carl Truman, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Thanks very much for having me. My heart knows you are You're constantly right here Always near Always near But in my head Folks, we are finishing out the show, and as we always do, we like to open up our inbox and answer one of your questions, and it could be about life, it could be about dating, it could be about friendship, it could be about um, addictive behaviors, it could just run, it could be about the Bible. Uh, It runs the gamut. We love to weigh in with our experts that we have available, and today is no exception. We have got Elaine Humphrey. She's one of our licensed professional counselors here at Focus on the Family. So Elaine, welcome. Thank you. Good to have you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read our listener's question and let you go ahead and offer some thoughts. 
Our listener says, I'm generally a self-assured, articulate woman, except when it comes to dating. I clam up and have a hard time communicating my feelings and being truly vulnerable with others. In my friendships, family relationships, and work relationships, I find communicating and even being vulnerable to be super easy. I don't know why I'm so self-conscious in this area, but I don't want this challenge to be a hindrance in my new dating relationship. What advice would you give? Yeah, well, I think just the fact that you're feeling some of those things are, are is definitely a red flag. And so you want to take a look at that and begin to ask yourself some things like, um, what does this remind me of from my past? What were some things that happened that maybe led to me being feeling uncomfortable with the opposite sex? What were some of the things that are not true that maybe I believed that got hardwired into my thinking that might trigger some of these feelings. So doing some exploration, figuring out where some of those feelings come from. Are they based on the truth? Are they based on lies and maybe defense mechanisms that I put into place that protected me as a child that I don't need now? And so, you know, confronting some of those things that may not be true would help you determine, okay, what is true? And how do I want to be in these relationships? And how do I want to feel comfortable? Um, And then asking God to help you begin to walk in the truth. And, you know, the things I always recommend that would be most helpful in terms of growing in the area of walking in your true self is finding that really strong, good, uh, godly community as your support system Uh, finding some accountability, maybe even a counselor, especially if there are things that you have recognized, wow, I believe these things and they're not true, but they're really hardwired in. And then, you know, some other things are journaling your progress, um, continuing to pray and seek, okay, God, what do you need me to know about this? And then finally, practicing using some tools like uh, some of the relaxation techniques, deep breathing, um, you know, really recognizing when you are triggered to uh, start functioning out of that false self. So those are some things that, that can be helpful. And I always encourage people that we are broken in community, so we're healed and we are healed in community. So community is really important in our personal growth. Yeah, thanks for that insight, Elaine. I think that's good. And I think it's um, it's interesting, you know, naturally, you know, people, because again, I've been in the dating sphere where you feel like there's that extra pressure on you because there's that romantic pressure of like, do I like this person? Do I have to decide that right now? Where do we go? What are they thinking? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's perfectly normal to be jittery. But again, if there is something holding you back, you know, that you are realizing, wow, why is because again in dating it really is a friendship until you have a an appropriate level of commitment moving forward where you know so you don't want to put too much import on the relationship on the front end and so i think that's good to um have your community around you and help them uh put objective eyes on your relationship and allow them to put objective eyes on your relationship she mentions here um that she's in a new dating relationship and so hopefully she'll have the people around her that can kind of help her get started yeah it could be something as simple as she's just not 
been around the opposite sex that mm-hmm. much. So, yeah, you know, but exploring some of the reasons for it are, is really important. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Um, a reminder to you, if you have not yet, uh, sometimes I put a shout out for this, to hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review. Whether you're a brand new listener or you've been around forever, if you would be willing to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts on The Boundless Show, that is what other people see that might uh, spark them to give The Boundless Show a try and maybe bring some new folks into our sphere, which is always kind of fun. So you could have a part in that. So please do that as soon as you think of it. Maybe as soon as you're done here with the show. Otherwise, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.